This morning we turn to Galatians. Let me begin with a story. Uh, in my final year uh, as a college student many years ago, um, I was at North Park University in Chicago, and uh, they would, for incoming freshmen or transfer students, uh, like most schools do, they did some kind of a new student orientation, and they used the upperclassmen uh, as volunteers. And uh, I had not cared for most of that experience when I had gone through it, except that you got to go to downtown Chicago and we ate at Harry Carey's, uh, which is top-notch. Good food, roast beef buffet, it's just brilliant. Um, so I, a friend of mine said, well, they need volunteers. Why don't you volunteer for it? I'm volunteering for it. And so I thought, yeah, I didn't really enjoy it that much, but the free food might be worth it. So I got the little two-page application because they encouraged me to do it. And uh, I did the minimum standard possible to apply for it. And when it said, why do you want to do this? I wrote two words, free food. They must have really needed volunteers because they chose me. And it wasn't Harry Carey's, it was Ed DeBevick's that year, but that's all right. It was still a good lunch and it was free. Uh, but the whole issue of freedom, I mean, I've, I've filled out a lot of forms for free things. I'm sure you have done the same thing too or attended things because you thought, oh, there's a free lunch involved or whatever it might be. We like free things. Sometimes we're looking for the catch, right? What's, what's the catch? What's the catch to me filling out my connection card today or something like that? But we like things that are free if they're truly free. We like the idea of freedom. I want to make my own choices. But what if our understanding of freedom is actually more self-interested than it should be to be real freedom? What, what if we end up believing that we are free, but in the end we're actually bonded and deceived, but not actually free? Now, I'm not going to get to the bottom of that today, but we're going to be entering into that territory throughout the whole of this sermon series on Galatians over the next bunch of weeks as we look through the whole, do a, a sort of a book study of Galatians. And, and if you get at the kind of overarching theme then of freedom, I would suggest to you that true freedom means transformation. That, that that has to happen first in order for freedom to be experienced. So an example that we might think of is a caterpillar. A caterpillar might think it's free to make its own choices and do what it wants to do. I'm giving it more cognitive ability than a caterpillar probably has, but go with it for the story. A caterpillar might feel free, and it might look at the butterfly and say, well, I'm free even though I can't fly, but it obviously has that potential within it to become that butterfly. And the, the caterpillar could think, I'm free. I'm perfectly fine. They could even slap a little bumper sticker on their backside that says, born right the first time, or something like that. But the caterpillar would be wrong there's something more, and they're not free. If we get to the first things first, though, when it comes to freedom, and this morning I'm generally going to use that almost synonymous with gospel, because they go together. Freedom must be proclaimed and lived before transformation can begin. We actually have to hear the message, we have to have to hear what freedom is, and then begin to step into it before we can actually be transformed to be free. So let's go to Galatians 1, 3 through 5, and let's enter into the territory of the book of Galatians. Paul writes these wonderful words, sort of a, an opening blessing or prayer. He writes, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from our present evil age, 
according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a great opening, and those words grace and peace are not unique to the book of Galatians. Paul uses those in a number of his letters to begin, but they're important for us to kind of grasp onto right away. They go together. Grace is an act of mercy, in this case given by God. It's free, it's undeserved. We couldn't earn it, God gives it. But in order to to actually live out that grace, the end result is peace. What God has in store for his creation. That's grace worked out to its natural conclusion in God's ways. That we would experience shalom, peace. But the problem enters in because we know that for many of us, we've said yes to God's grace at some point. But we know that the problem and the curse of sin always comes into play because we haven't fully experienced the peace yet. And sometimes it's hard to live into that. So think it through uh, what causes the problem of getting to the peace quite often. Uh, if you put two kids in the same room, it doesn't matter what age they are. Just go with any age that we consider kids. They can get along pretty well for a long time and share, but eventually things will turn towards self-interest at some point. You could, uh, consequently, uh, put two national leaders in the same room, and we often see this on TV playing out where they're trying to negotiate some kind of a deal between two countries that'll be in the best interest for both countries. But we know that when either of those leaders go back to their country to say, I struck a deal, they're not going to go back and say, this is going to be really good for the other guy, but it's not going to be so-so for us. No, they're interested in what's going to be good for us, right? Yeah, it might be good for them. That's great. That's why it works. But look at what it does for us. Self-interest is always going to play a role. And so we can be given this act of mercy but through grace, but it's not really complete until we've kind of found the peace that God's going to give us. Ultimately, we only find that at the end of this life, but God can work it through and give us some of that shalom now, God's highest good, even now. And that's really when you get down to what the gospel is. The gospel is freedom, and the gospel is this grace and this peace working together. So if we look at Galatians then, because this is the way Paul starts the letter, but it's going to take a decisive turn. If you've read Galatians, we heard chapter 1 this morning, and we heard where it went. Let's compare it, because something's up with the the Galatian churches. If you look at the other uh, pastoral epistles that are, are here, sorry, prison epistles, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Galatians, um, Colossians starts with, we always thank God, our fa- the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And then it just keeps going on from there in this beautiful language. Ephesians starts with, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And it goes on from there. Wonderful language. I'm praying for you. We're co-laborers in the gospel. Philippians, the church that Paul really loved. I mean, he just goes in very friendly terms there. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray for you with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. But what does Paul say in the book of Galatians right after this? Verse 6, I'm astonished that you are now so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel totally different feel to this letter from the beginning. The others, he's saying, you guys are doing great. We can keep walking the same path. Galatians, you foolish Galatians, what happened? Is the kind of stuff he says. 
And we heard from Acts 14, it wasn't all that long ago that he was there with these churches. And it's sort of like, I was thinking about this at, at my own house, uh, five of us living in the house, uh, we, you know, the dishes pile up next to the sink, you clean them up, and what happens five minutes later? Where'd all these dishes come from? They're back. Every five minutes, it seems like, the moment you clean it up, they're back in. You clean the living room, where'd all these toys come from? Five minutes later, it happens all the time. We know what this is like. The same kind of thing has gone on with, with Paul here in Galatia. So let's look at a map here really quick. Um, this will show us, when we're talking about Galatians, it's a region, and you can kind of see where it says the word Asia. The Galatian region is Antioch, Icona, Iconium, Lystra, that area, uh, which would be modern-day Turkey, or part of modern-day Turkey, is where, where he's talking. So it's a group of churches that he's visited. So when you read Acts 13 and 14, you kind of get the story. This is, these are churches Paul visited on his first missionary journey. That's what we were hearing in Acts 14 this morning is our scripture reading. But in this short period of time, you can see that Paul's saying the gospel is being perverted. I just came through there, guys. I told you what the gospel is. And, and you can see there's agitation that even came with him that followed him on the heels. But he has to write back to them quickly that something's gone wrong. There's sort of this, this uh, clash between the understanding of the old covenant and the new covenant that's going on with God, or with the people of Galatians. And we'll get into some of those details in the coming weeks, but basically circumcision and kosher foods are the, are the big issues that come into play. Paul has some very harsh words about one of those, in fact. But let's look at chapter 1 a little bit further. Let's think through, because often in church life, not just in looking at Galatians or a specific book, we use the word gospel a lot. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We preach the gospel. And so I think it's helpful to define it since it's so central to what's going on here. Paul will define it even further than this throughout the book, but I think we can glean an awful lot right away from chapter 1 and what Paul means. First of all, the gospel just by definition means good news. That's what it actually is. That's the word means that. But we can also see that Paul set us up to understand what that good news is at the very beginning. It's God's good news because of that grace and peace that's offered. And I would suggest that these things are good in and of themselves, but they're only going to be good in your life and my life when they're actually lived out. When they're actually somehow uh, put into practice, that's when grace and peace matter. Uh, my seven-year-old was in my office with me this week for a little bit, and he's looking around at all the books on the shelf, and he asked the usual question that people asked, have you read all these, Dad? Most people don't end with Dad, but he did. Yeah, have you read all these, Dad? Well, if, for pastors, books are often uh, can be an idol. Uh, we like them. We like the look of them. We like to read them. Uh, but sometimes we have them on our shelf because they look good too and we got them as a free gift or something like that. So you have to give the honest answer. I've read most of them or most of parts of them, but some of them are just there for looks and it's time to get rid of them. It's a good question. But honestly, what good is the knowledge doing if it's just sitting there on the shelf? If it's just getting dusty and I, I can just point to it, that's a pretty book. I don't know what it says. It's not being utilized. The good news is really only going to be good to you and me if it's put into practice, if it becomes part of who we are. We can also glean from chapter 1 that the gospel of Jesus Christ 
needs Jesus in order to work. It's not going to work without that. And if you look at verse 7, Paul's pointing out that they've been thrown into confusion. Uh, you can see that the gospel is actually about order, not chaos. It's about putting things together, not pulling them apart. But if we go to verses 8 and 9, we can see uh, something very important about the gospel. Verses 8 and 9 really come across strongly. I mean, you can see Paul has something to say here. He says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, and your translation may have various different kinds of things, but this one says, Let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, If anybody is preaching a gospel to you other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Help me if that seems like pretty strong language for what's going on, right? The gospel is important enough that anything short of God's true gospel, anything that would subvert or pervert this good news, is under God's curse. That tells you something pretty important about the message that Paul's been bringing. The word actually used there is anathema. And that word really means to bring your own case before God, your own truth, essentially, before God. Um, Think that through, and I don't think that's going to work out well for a person. But it does ask an important question. When it comes down to what is the gospel and what are we sometimes living uh, the why behind this, it brings a, a question I think is important to consider as you live life. And I've asked this to people before, and it's a powerful question. Is there judgment at the end of this life? Is there someone you're accountable to in the end for your actions in this life? And it's a pivotal question, because if the answer is yes, it obviously affects how you live your life, both with other people and with whoever you're accountable to, we would say God. But if the answer is no, then it draws into the question, why are you here today? Because if it's not illegal, you can go do whatever you want. Nobody's going to hold you accountable at the end of your life. And even if it is illegal, you could probably go to another part of the world where you could do it and get away with it. And nobody's going to hold you accountable. But I think we're probably all on the same page that there is some accountability for what's going to happen at the end. And there is something significant about how we operate in this life. And when Paul says that they're, they're, they'll let them be under God's curse, that anathema word, that you're trying to bring your own case before the judge, it's ultimately going to fail. You are accountable, but you're accountable to something specific. The gospel is about what is true. It's a gospel of truth. And that also leads to another thing that we can recognize, that the gospel is not about my will, but God's will then. If God is the arbiter of truth, and if the gospel is about that which is true, then the gospel actually involves sacrifice on my part. To give up that which would be under God's curse for that which would be under God's blessing and towards God's peace. The gospel is selfless, not selfish. Now, Paul, in verse 10, he goes on to say, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to win your approval by saying all this. And then in verse 11, he goes on. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. 
Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And so there are two more things we can kind of bring together about what the gospel is from this. First of all, the gospel is God's work for all that God created, but let's narrow it down. It's God's work for us, for humans. That that which is broken, that which lives under the curse, would actually be fixed, redeemed, reconciled. It's not uh, what we get in God's uh, revelation, that is what God has given to us about who God is, is not a human work about God, but a God work for humans. We know that one of the primary means of revelation of God revealing himself is Scripture. And revelation are things that we couldn't know except that God revealed them. We can gather a lot of information, perhaps, about what God is like from the natural world around us, but I may point out we can also draw the wrong conclusions about who God is from the world around us. We actually need God cluing us in to help us understand who God is, because only God ultimately knows the fullness of that. And so this was revealed, the origin of this, the source, is not human origin, Paul says. This is God's work both the gospel itself of the uh, transformation that can come through Jesus Christ, all that information that comes with it about who God is, all of that is God's work for us, revealed to us by God for our benefit. And the second thing he, he points out that might seem a little hidden in the text, but I'm going to suggest it's right there, is that the gospel is going to remain unknown unless it's proclaimed. That is to say, for whatever reason... God chose you and me to be the proclamation of that gospel. He worked it out through Jesus Christ, but then he says, those of you that follow my son Jesus as his disciples, you're the ones who are supposed to proclaim this to everybody else. Live it out, tell others. In verse 11, Paul writes, the gospel I preached, that little word there, the word in the, the, the two words in Greek, the original language there, really are the same word. It's the, the noun and the verb of euangelion, which is where we get evangelism. So he really says the gospel I gospeled, or the evangelism I evangelized. It's the same word at play both times. So what we can notice is the good news itself is to be proclaimed, and it's built into the same word. You don't just live the good news and keep it to yourself. You proclaim the good news and let it out. That's what the word makes us do. That's what the gospel is. It's not simply something we hide under a bushel basket or something like that. We let it out. Now, if we bring this down to sort of us today and some response we could have to this, uh, we've proclaimed, and we already said it this morning, that as God's people, we pray, grow, and go. That's our vision of how we're supposed to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ in Lincoln, Nebraska. That's what we have stated. And so I want to give you a couple challenges this morning. You can already see them up, up on the screen, but I'll, I'll fill them in with a little more uh, meaning here. And I want to point out, uh, a couple years ago, I was involved in an evangelism cohort. Um, this was actually one of those things that was funded by when we give in the offering plate and we give to the conference and denomination. It funds things like this. So I was invited to be a part of that with other covenant pastors and some other pastors up in Omaha is where this took place, some non-covenant pastors as well. And it was really exciting because uh, I, I'm not a natural evangelist. People often think pastor equals natural evangelist. It doesn't. 
Um, like most of you, I'm, I'm, I'm an introvert, and uh, I'm happy to read a book in my office, but going out and telling people, it takes work. Um, but I'm happy to put in the work. And I was challenged to put in the work through the evangelism cohort because as a group, we met together every month, and we had to report. We learned, of course, uh, facts, figures, and other things about what works in evangelism. But we had to account, keep each other accountable to what's my evangelism temperature right now. Is it ice cold zero or is it red hot 10? Where is it at? And, and just naming it makes a huge difference in what you're going to do. And then the second thing we had to do is just within a, a minute period of time, we're giving uh, what, where is our evangelism temperature and what interaction have you had within the last month that was a gospel interaction? Where have you been able to have a conversation with somebody or build that relationship in some way that's going to lead to Jesus Christ in the end? And it was very exciting to have to be challenged to be the proclamation of the gospel on a regular basis. So I have a gospel challenge for you this morning. Uh, you can have a couple different levels at which you might take this. One question we could ask if the proclamation of the gospel is supposed to happen from uh, God's people, from those who follow Jesus Christ, think to yourself, who proclaimed the word to me? Who is it that told me about Jesus Christ? Or you could think of, who is it that's had such a significant influence in drawing me closer to Christ, informing my faith? And I've got cards here. I've got cards back there. I've got a couple cards up here from First Covenant. I'm going to encourage you on the last time to come up or after the service is over to go get one of the cards from one of the stations and write a thank you card to somebody who proclaimed the gospel to you. Now, in some cases, those people might be gone. And so we should thank God for those people. So you might be able to take challenge number two, or you can find other people who've influenced you that are still living. You could even write the card, frankly, to somebody who's long since passed, and it might be pretty remarkable what you discover about your faith. The other question is, to whom do you need to proclaim the gospel? Who do you know, who do you have in your life that needs to hear? And you're the person that God has called to tell them. I'm going to ask that you take a card, if you can think of that person, and write an invitation not to church some Sunday, but church next Sunday. Come and join me and hear the gospel with me. Come and join me because the people I worship with have drawn me closer to Jesus Christ and I thought of you because of that. Will you come and worship with me? And if writing a card just seems antiquated to you, you can text them today before you leave. It actually works. You can do both if you want. You can take one of these little business cards that we have around to invite people to church. I carry these with me all the time to try and invite people to come and worship with us. Take one of those challenges today. Invite someone. Say thanks to someone. Affirm or invite them. Let me tell you a story because I want you to understand the, sometimes it takes a lot to invite somebody and get them to come. Um, there was a, a story of a, one of our churches in our denomination in California. It, the story comes from a book called The American Church in Crisis um, where this church plant had occurred. They had finally built their building. They were in a neighborhood um, and they wanted to make sure they were being good neighbors because they knew this increased traffic and all kinds of other things for their neighbors. So they went around on a Saturday with uh, a, a wagons full of orange juice and donuts to their immediate neighbors. And they, they invited them to church, but they really mostly went around to say, hey, we're just giving this as an act of hospitality, and we want to make sure we're good neighbors to you. 
So we know this changes our traffic patterns and things. Can you make, well, let's make sure there's open communication between us so you know that you can call us and, and tell us what's going on if we need to change some things. We want to be good neighbors. We're your neighbors with you. And one of the people they talked to was the woman that lived right across the street, basically, from the church, who took the invitation and, and said, you know what, I need to get to church. And so she got dressed up the next Sunday, lives right across the street from the church, and couldn't get out the door. She dressed up the second Sunday to go across the street to church. She couldn't bring herself to go out the door. Four Sundays later, she finally went and became a key part of that church. But it took her four Sundays of dressing up to finally get out the door to go to church because sometimes people are nervous, but most people would accept an invitation. And so as you consider who you might invite to join us, recognize that it might take multiple in invitations and it might take some sacrifice on your part to say, hey, will you come to church with me? I'll pick you up. I'll go to breakfast with you before. I'll go to lunch with you afterwards. Take the extra step to help them come and join us to hear the good news. It may take a little extra effort, but how else are they going to hear? So I'm inviting you. Pick up a card. Grab a card. Come during the last song. Come at the end of service. Pick up one of those. Let's pray. And let's, let's pray a blessing on these cards and on the relationships that we have. Lord, I'm so grateful that you shared your good news with us. And, and quite literally, the good news is that your son Jesus Christ died for us so that we could be transformed and renewed and not live under the curse of sin anymore. But live renewed, redeemed lives. And God, we recognize that that means that we are going to be transformed, that there are going to be things that changed. But first and foremost, God, I'm thankful that someone took the time for each of us who know your son to proclaim that message to us. And God, for those of us that are sitting in the room who feel distant from you, God, will you help those of us who know proclaim the good news to them this morning? and draw them to you. And God, for those that we know that really need your presence but, but don't know your good news, God, help us not say yes or no for them, but simply invite. Put them on our heart and don't let them go. God, put them on our heart and don't let us feel satisfied unless we have said, would you come and hear the good news with me? God, help us be the ones who tell the truth and to preach your good news as the redeemed. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.